Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, we're here in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to hone in on one verse, and over the next couple of weeks, perhaps we'll expand it a little bit. Uh, but notice, if you will, in verse number 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Several weeks ago, we brought a message out of Ephesians chapter 4. And the emphasis there in Ephesians chapter 4 says this, Neither give place to the devil. I challenge some areas that are often a battleground in the life of a Christian. Sometimes it's our attitude. Sometimes it's our actions. No doubt, many, many times, it's our thought life. And we kind of mentioned several times in that passage or in that sermon, made reference to what you find in Peter, particularly verse 9 here, resisting steadfast in the faith. Also, you find nearly the same language in James, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But I want to bring our attention to this particular question because in the overarching theme of the next week, I want to talk a little bit about spiritual warfare in the life of a believer. I read an article some time ago and a fellow made a profound statement. He said, as a young preacher, I did not really consider much spiritual warfare. But the older I become, the more truth, the more difficulty, the greater the battle I see in this particular area, not only as it opposes to me as a minister of the gospel of Christ, but also by way of God's children. An interesting thought. Look here in verse 8. Our adversary, dot, 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 the devil, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Next question. Is this figurative language or is it literal? Now, that's a trick question. It's a trick question. In its essence, it's literal. In its picture, it's figurative, as denoted by that word as, as a roaring lion. But in the context of it, is the devil really seeking to devour? Who is he seeking to devour? What does it mean to be devoured? I mean, if in fact this is to be deemed as literal, as we are to think it is, what then meaneth it? Why would we not give greater care and concern to all of those areas that so easily in the life of a believer we can have a proclivity to give place to the devil? Why would we give place to an adversary that seeks to devour us? Who is this devil? What is his realm? What is his power? There's a lot of questions packed into that. Look, if you will, in the Gospel of John just for a second. I know you have those two passages marked, but let me, let me just highlight some verses and let's answer a couple of questions here. Who, who is the devil? He talks about him being our adversary. Who is he? By definition, if you were going to say, what is his realm? What is his region? Where is his domicile? Where would these be located? And we could, we could make a lot of statements, but let's just look in the scriptures. Notice, if you will, John. <clears throat> I'm going to have you look at three passages in the epistle of John. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole context, but there's a language. All three is the Lord, um, as recorded of the Lord speaking there. And I think it gives some insight into where his domicile is, how the Lord esteemed this enemy of himself and of his people. Look at John chapter 12. Notice John chapter 12. Notice in verse 31. I'll give you just a moment. John 12, verse 31. Notice what he reads here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the what? Prince of this world be cast out. Look over a few chapters, a few pages later. Look at chapter 14. And this is starting what we would call the passion of our Lord. This is at you know, probably Wednesday night, uh, just before his crucifixion. He's about ready to break bread with his disciples. And he's telling them in the opening verses, let not your heart be troubled. Notice, if you will, as it continues, drop your eyes down to verse number 30. Hereafter... I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world 
cometh and hath nothing in me. Here John 14. Look over as he continues this conversation in John 16 and drop your eyes down to the 11th verse. Speaking of the promise of the coming of, of the comforter that is there in verse number 11, he's going to come because of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. You see the title there given, one by which every Christian should be aware, is the domicile of the devil, of course, is terra firma. It is this earth. Uh, it's interesting that the scriptures, the Psalms in particularly, talk about the Lord sitting in heaven until I have made all of his enemies. He references earth and being a footstool and presence there. This world, its system, is under the domicile of the evil one, the prince of this world. I think of Ephesians chapter 2. There's another closely related title that is given to him. He said, ye walked, talking about believers in a past tense, ye walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This devil, he commands a demonic realm. He administrates this world's system. And here in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's likened to a predator that lurks in the night, yet you might even say of his own creation, and seeks to devour. The imagery of a lion was well known in biblical times. I'll give you a list of verses. We, I won't have you turn to these, but I'll read you some of the references. You'll find a number of times in the prophetical Psalms, particularly in uh, Psalm 7 and verse 2, speaking of lions and their ability. Uh, talking, um, David does about his persecutors. He says, they tear my soul like a lion. You see the viciousness there. In the 10th Psalm, he said, uh, those that wait secretly as a lion in his den, and the young lion that croucheth for his prey. In the 17th Psalm, speaking again, the reference of lion. I want you to get the picture of what a roaring lion is. He lurketh in the secret places. And you can almost, you ever, you ever see an old cat <coughs> in a yard and it spied its prey? You know what that cat does? It just gets up in that little posture there and it begins to lurk its way. And that prey, probably much appreciated what it's about to do for you and I, is seemingly unaware. They're frolicking in the grass the area nearby, they might agree with you that there's danger. Because after all, there can be danger everywhere. But the last second, that prepared lurking cat lurches. And from thence it has captured your prey. That's the imagery that the psalmist is driving home. That's the imagery that Peter, through inspiration, is trying to sink down in our hearts your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. He's lurking in the secret places. In the 22nd Psalm, one we sang some time ago around uh, April out of the Psalter, it talks about the strong bulls of Bashan that have encompassed me. That's the 12th verse, the 13th verse. It talks about they, these, these enemies, as lions, they have gaped upon me. It has the idea that they have with open mouths sought to claim me and to gnaw upon me, and to chew me. The 35th Psalm, speaking of the darling one, and the promise of his resurrection, etc., says that he would rescue the darling one from lions. The 58th Psalm in the 6th verse, he speaks of the great teeth of the lions. I believe particularly he's talking about the young lions, their gurions, young lions, their aggression, their power. <coughs> the 104th Psalm, you'll find lions referred to as the young lions that roar after their prey. Ezekiel in the 22nd chapter, the 25th verse, talks about the roaring lion ravaging the prey. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't consider other places in scriptures where combat with a lion denotes a significant struggle. I think, of course, the judges and Samson. And Samson who uh, had a lion come upon him, and he rent that lion with his bare hands. And it's a demonstration of his power and strength. 
It's a witness of seemingly a supernaturally given power that he had to do something that all, especially in the Old Testament as they would deal and interact with these beasts, would have the opportunity or the ability to do. And that could be true of Samson in so many ways. Like what he called all of those foxes. And he lashed their tails together. That's something of supernatural ability in one regard. I think of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, one of the three of David's greatest mighty men. And the scripture says in the 20th verse of uh, the Second Samuel chapter 23 that Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, slew, this is an interesting adjective here, two lion-like men. Now that can capture your imagination. They were not lions or male lions. They were lion-like men. Now what do you think that was? I, I tell you, the Bible doesn't describe what it was to be a lion-like man, but thinking of all the descriptions that the Scripture gives about that animal and what he does, these were cunning warriors. These were men that knew their way around implements of war. These were men that had no compunction at all about destroying anything. And sometimes you'll hear folks talk about what they'd do if their life was in danger. I, I don't know that one should really engage in that kind of thought at all, but I'm going to tell you the ability to, to, to engage in a type of physical combat like that is unnatural. Many a man of war that I have met in my life, when he comes to talk about his engagements on the field of battle, he silences himself because it could be a horrendous thing to consider. These men that Benaiah slew, there are two of them. They're lion-like. They're cunning men of war. They're not injured and half-crippled. Given a window of an opportunity, they would have slew this Jew, Benaiah, and left his carcass. Raised it in their own pride. Then he continues in 2 Samuel, he says this, Also, Benaiah slew a lion, Listen to this. Slew a lion in the midst of a pit in a time of snow. There's <laughs> talking about unfriendly territory there. In a pit, slewing a lion that's slaying a lion, that'd be one thing. But you're in a pit with it? You might as well fight because you can't flight. <laughs> and there's snow upon the ground? I would not think that that would give him a grand advantage. And this is recorded by us by preservation. Why? To indicate not only a historical occurrence of what he did, but of his cunning ability. How he was used by King David and why, no doubt, he was one of the mighty men that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Then I think in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about a lion. Paul standing there in front of Caesar in a tribunal give an account of his charges as a Roman citizen. In the 17th verse, the scripture says, Paul, he said, no man, st at my first answer, the first time I'm called to court, the inquiry, no man stood with me. Now, there's a whole host of them in Rome. But it's a fearful thing to do that. And Paul says, but the Lord strengthened me. And I preached the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And he uses this phrase, and he delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. That's a marvelous thing to consider. The danger that is there. One of the miracles of God's deliverance of his people is Daniel being delivered out of the den of lion. It's a powerful consideration. It's a natural. The whole reason that the pit was there, the whole reason uh, by which one was being thrown in there was they'd be destroyed and they had starved those beasts. In fact, a few sentences, verses later, the enemies of Daniels are cast in and they are completely devoured, suddenly devoured. And Daniel's going to spend the night with them. Every man, every individual of Babylon's rim knew that for someone to be thrown into that uh, depth with lions was a sudden defeat. But oh, aged Daniel rested all night long. It's a miracle. Notice there in Peter, 
your adversary today as a roaring lion. If we're going to consider spiritual warfare, it's important to recognize the utter power that our demonic adversary has. He is a lion, and at that, a roar lion. Notice here a couple of pictures that you get of your adversary in verse number 8. Now, we'll deal with sober and vigilant in time to come. He speaks of your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, one that's about to startle that prey, one that's about to prey on their, their victims. Notice what he does here. He says they walketh about. That's a fantastic word study. If you want something to do, you go to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I think it's verse 15. Walk circumspectly. It's the same Greek word. And the prefix of this Greek word is, uh, in English, it's P-E-R. Now, we've got some gardeners here. You're familiar with perennial versus annual. What's a perennial? Comes back. In the Latin that moves to the Greek, the idea is to go through. It will go through winter. And combined with the second part in the Greek, it has, it has a similar idea. It means kind of about. And the second part of that verb is patio. And so parapatio, it means he walketh about. He's not just walking. He's more or less stalking. He's engaged in every area. The idea is he is completely occupied seeking whom he may devour. That word devour, I suppose it's an impolite consideration to describe devour at a lunch table. You're supposed to have manners when you eat. But someone that's devouring something is in a dearth of understanding of manners. In fact, the idea, it means to gulp down. It means, if you will, to drown. The, the idea of just completely consuming. To, if you will, swallow in one massive gulp. The imagery that is compared is his intent is not to wound, but rather his full desire is to destroy. He's opposed to God. He's opposed to believers. He, Satan, the devil, the slanderer, he it is that is behind all the wrestling and contending that believers should be already engaged in. Look over in Ephesians one more time. In 2 Corinthians, you turn to Ephesians, and I'm here at 2 Corinthians. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Who's behind all of these warfares, these strongholds, these evil imaginations, these high things that exalt themselves against God? Well, it's your adversary. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and note, if you will, verses 11 and following. Verse 10, putting on the whole armor of God, if you will. Being strong in his might, rather. Verse 10, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand the wiles of the devil. Note the text in verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Against powers. In Ephesians 6 and 12. Against rulers of darkness of this place. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. Who's behind all of that? Who's behind the rulers of darkness? It's not one ruler, it's plurality. Who, who's behind the powers? I think of all the demonic hosts that exist. Who, who are these principalities, plurality? It's one singular entity. He's highlighted there in 1 Timothy, or Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. He is your adversary. And so a preacher, I understand that. So then let me ask you, how does he seek to devour? Who is he devouring? Who is it that he would love to devour? You there in Revelation? I'm going to give you four. 
four entities. Look over in Revelation chapter 12. Sometime in the Sunday school hour, we'll probably next week begin marching right back through. I think we're in chapter 7 now. I'll take a little break for a while and it'll carry us through the winter months. But I want you to look in Revelation chapter 12. Let me identify three people. And we identify them by how they're used in other places of Scripture. And it's quite simple. Revelation chapter 20, there's an imagery given. This is kind of in the midst of the book. Look, if you will, in verse number 1. <coughs> John, the revelator, as revealed to him by the Spirit of God, said, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, and a woman. If you write in your Bible, circle that word woman. And over it, put this, the nation of Israel, clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of how many stars? Twelve. Notice verse number two. And she being with child. Who's the child, do you think? That's the Christ. That's the anointed one of God. And the scripture continues, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon. Now, who do you think that is? That's your enemy. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail, his tail drew the third part of the stars of the heaven and did cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for, and that interesting word there, what's he doing? Who's he trying to devour? He's described as a ravaging lion in the Old Testament, a persecutor, an enemy. Why? Because his first enemy was the one that created him. Five times in the 14th chapter of Isaiah, that son of the morning, Lucifer cried, I will ascend. I will, I will, I will, I will. And he opposed himself firstly against the God of his creation. And that's revealed in Genesis chapter 3. That he would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And yet that seed of a woman would bruise the head of this very serpent. I continue to devour a child as soon as it was born. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a what? Rod of iron. Who's that child again? Jesus Christ. In fact, if you want a greater clarity, you'd only need to look at the second chapter of Revelation. I think it's verse 27. And the 19th chapter and 15, it's directly talking about Jesus Christ. It's unmistakable. And throughout the Old Testament, there are many prophecies about the fact that he has a rod that will be destructive to his adversaries. For instance, in the 119th Psalm, in the second verse, he's talking about the rod of strength. In Isaiah, he's talking about the rod out of his mouth. In Psalm, chapter, uh, the second Psalm, the ninth verse, again, you've got this rod and this imagery. Here in this passage, in verse number 5, for which he is going with this rod of iron to rule all nations. And her child was called up to God, unto God, and to his throne. By the way, where's Jesus Christ at this evening? Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Note here in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness. Where she had the place prepared of God, and they should feed her there. <coughs> A thousand, two hundred, and three score days. Note verse 7. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels, what did they do? They fought against the dragon and the dragon and fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Verse number 9, the great dragon was cast out and the old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out of the earth and his angels were cast out with him. 
And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength, the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame it by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, ye that dwell in him. Ye that dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. But you can rejoice. Why? Because ye know that he hath but a short time. And here in this passage, you've got clearly four enemies by which Satan is opposed to, that he seeks to devour. Let me rehearse them to you again. The first of those is none other than the child. Jesus Christ. Now when you read Romans chapter 12 or Revelation chapter 12, you've got to look at this as a whole picture of humanity that he's seeing. It's not all fitted in this one narrow view, in this one narrow chronological point. He's seeing a vision in heaven that moves through an extent of time from that which was to that which is in his narrative. You're noticing there, he says, he seeks to devour, in verse number 4, her child as soon as it was born. What are times in which Satan sought to devour the Christ. Well, I think you could go back to Exodus. You could find one named Pharaoh, that hard-hearted, murderous, godless, polytheistic uh, idol worshiper. And what was the command that Pharaoh gave? Kill all those little boys. It's remarkably similar to what you find in Matthew chapter 2 when it's a very similar claim that Herod the Great gave. You know, he that would be referred to as the king of the Jews? Kill them all. Jeremiah the prophet says in prophesying about that many years before, he said there'd be great lament in Rachel. Great lament in her. The death and horror and atrocity that would be poured out upon her. Why? What was occurring? Infanticide. Satan was no fool. Why, if I can destroy the woman that is going to have the child, I will have destroyed my enemy Christ. And he sought to devour her. I think, of course, of Matthew chapter 4. He sought to devour Christ at his great temptation. Forty days of fasting and into the wilderness. And he tempted him. All the nations of the world. My, they say that everybody can be bought. And you think of that great consideration, all the nations of the world? If you'll just submit to me, I'll give you earth in the prettiest bow possible. It's amazing to consider. I heard a <coughs> story some time ago, a fellow, he was, he was fired. He, had a, he was a football coach. He won a national title about a year later, had a, had a poor record, and they needed to change things up. And they let him go unceremoniously. They didn't let him finish the season. A couple years later, somebody asked him, said, I mean, how did that make you feel? He said, feelings had nothing to do with it. He said, the day they came to fire me, they looked at me and said, now we are going to give you the remaining portion of your contract in a buyout. It'll be about $17.5 million. But we need this your last day. He said, you know what I told them? What door do you want me to walk out of? Do you want it locked? you want the light out? Can you, can you imagine the essence of $70 million, a massive fortune? Some of us can work all your life. You'll never even smell that money. You'll never get that close to it. Consider somebody writing you a check like that? That's amazing. Of course, he was never going to get it either. It'd be a huge tax burden, but we'll leave that for another day. Remember that on November the 8th. Anyway, can you imagine being seen all the nations of the world? All the glory and splendor? that human minds could contrive? What is he trying to do? He's trying to destroy that Christ. I think there are others. I think of Judas Iscariot. Now this did not surprise him, but he sold him, betrayed him, his friend, man that had cared for him and sustained him for the better part of three years. He sold him. Why? The influence of an evil one seeking to destroy the Christ. 
I think of the Jewish leaders. Time will not allow us, but I'll give you one passage to look at. You go look at John chapter 11, and that's the, the great narrative of Lazarus. It has that shortest verse in the Bible, 35th verse, Jesus wept. Over and again, he talks about the Pharisees and the rulers of religious circles in that day and their great hatred and disdain. You get down to verse number 47, 48, 53, down in that area. He talks about that they were even going to put to death anybody that associated with him. Insomuch that they not only wanted to kill Christ, but they were willing to kill Lazarus. Poor fellow just got out of the grave and they were willing to hurry him back to it. Why? He's also the enemy of God. And he was doing everything he could to kill and destroy the Messiah, the Christ, the King. I'll give you another one. It's a little bit modern. I think today one way in which Satan combats against Jesus Christ is to pervert his gospel message. Over Galatians chapter 1, you have another gospel which was not, is not another gospel. It's a pagan gospel. You see so much today of folks putting their hope and trust in something that has no saving efficacy at all. The constant rendering of useless theology that does not come from a biblical source that seeks to damn and destroy souls. That's directly out of the domicile of the evil one. All of this social gospel that exists today, my friend, that's straight out of the war book of the devil. It's not saving anyone. It's idea of entertainment church in one regard. It's the same promulgation of evil. Satan does not mind if these blinded souls are religious. Not at all. He cares whether or not they've been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There are two distinctions to be made there. He seeks to devour the Messiah. Notice the second devouring here in this passage. He sought to destroy Israel. I mean, this chapter, folks ought to really impress upon you the sound doctrinal teaching of a pre-tribulational view of the end times. Why? He is not talking about the church. Israel and the church age are completely distinctive. I don't know what a Calvinist would do with this. Really not a Calvinist so much as a Reformed theologian. Uh, replacement theology. I don't know what they would do with it. Because I don't know what child a group of believers have ever birthed that went to heaven and one day will reign everywhere. But I do know about a nation who was promised to Abraham that through his lineage all nations would be blessed. It's the nation of Israel. And notice this word here. Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had place prepared of God that they should feed her. And the constant viewpoint there is she is being pursued. Villages in the hamlet into the wilderness. Notice in the context, um, another passage comes to mind, I think, of where it talks about him sending a flood. Anything he can do to destroy her. You look over the course of human history and how it interweaves with the descendants of Abraham, and I would note of this, they are under constant dreaded attack. I mean, you can go back, like we said earlier, to Exodus and talk about Pharaoh in Egypt. You can look in the time of the judges, of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Havites, the Amalekites. Why was it always the Jew? It's not accidental. Why is it the world stage today that the most unpopular nation is not the U.S.? I doubt you'd ever get people to honestly say that the nation they hate the most is the U.S., even the ones that do hate us. Why? Because they feed off of our money. But to Jew? Oh, my soul. 
no matter what they do. There have been world calamities, natural disasters that occurred where other countries were offered uh, substance, health, humanitarian aid by the nation of Israel that it has been rejected before it could ever arrive. Why? They're hated. The Bolsheviks in Russia hated them. Warsaw, Poland, prior to World War I, Warsaw, Poland was full of Jews. Full of them. There's no nation of Israel then. In fact, I've got a book in my library. A fellow was born in Warsaw, Poland, and 18-something another. And he said as a little boy they could walk, and he said there were gospel-preaching churches made up of Jewish believers dotted all over Warsaw. That's where the ghettos were, and they were destroyed. And they all were not Jewish faith people. Some of them were just as born again as you and I were. And they're destroyed. The Spanish in the 1500s and their inquisition destroy them. The 1960s, Jordan and Egypt and all of those surrounding Arabic nations, let's push her into the sea. When it failed, they repeated their mission in 1973 as well. Is it 1972? The Munich Olympics, if I've got that right, 1972? I wasn't around then, but some of you were. Was that 1972, the Munich Olympics? Those German-born, Arab-trained terrorists broke into the wrestling dormitories, attempting to slaughter just Jewish people. These are narratives of history. Why does it always happen to a group whose population is less, really almost globally, than that of Pennsylvania. Do you realize any other country with that few people receives stipends from the world over? I saw an article of the week. The nation of Hungary. Hungary. How many of you visited there? Hungary, it's the land of the Huns. About 40 million people, I guess. Half of their budget comes from other countries. They're that impoverished. Half of their budget, billions of dollars. But little old Israel, seven million people. Nobody giving them a red nickel. Why is it that way? Because the God of this world is dastardly opposed to them. Why? Because of all the people, of all the world, God made a covenant with them. And it signified his promise. So I'm going to destroy them. Esther, chapter 3, all the way down to chapter 4. What's the narrative? Destroy the Jew. It's interesting. Verse number 12. A little ahead of myself, but it'll kind of wrap all this up. Verse number 12. He's cast out of heaven. He wars with a third group, the angels of heaven. You see that in the scriptures. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, Jude chapter 1, Daniel chapter 10 is a fantastic passage. Daniel prays unto God, and there's an intergalactic battle that is fought in the heavens over a space of three weeks. The devil opposing God's message. In fact, turn over to Daniel chapter 12. Here at the end of the book of Revelation, what you'll find is you'll find... Uh, 1260 days, three years, where all this torrential evil is going to fall out upon the nation of Israel. Horrific. Note what Daniel pins. And I, I can't go into all of this for time's sake, but I'm trying to show you the emphasis. We get so cursory. Well, our adversary, the devil, yes, he made my tire go flat. Folks, the passage, spiritual warfare, so far greater than your tire going flat. This is significant. This is uh, spiritually success or failure predicated upon this. In Daniel chapter 12, note this. And I'll, I'll catch you up quickly. Daniel chapter 9, 10, and 11 are eschatologically power-packed. They're of divine revelation given to Daniel. He starts off chapter 9, he's talking about the desolation, the abomination of desolation. And he carries through it at that time. You're going to see it again later in the chapters. 
And Daniel would ask questions and God would reveal it to him, even down to the time frame to which things were going to come. Yea, even to the time in which the Messiah would come and be crucified. All of that was present. Sixty-nine weeks are determined upon thy people. All of it carried in great narration. Daniel chapter 11, he speaks about the division of world power being there. Powers to the east and a king of the north and a king of the south. And then in verse number 36, he talks about a willful king. That's the son of perdition. And one unique thing that this willful king does is he makes a covenant somewhere about the beginning of the tribulation with the children of Israel and their land. And he either allows them or sustains them so that they can build a temple on the mount. They build a temple and they reinstitute all of the Old Testament worship. Come about every April, Passover celebrated over in Israel. And about every year, you'll find a bunch of Jews getting arrested. And this past year was no different. Because a whole car of them got caught. You know what they had in their car? A lamb. And they were going to offer him, offer that little Passover lamb. They got arrested. I mean, some of them they've opened and they've just found all of the necessary Old Testament described things. Why? Their eyes are blinded, friend. One day this Antichrist, he's going to be the willful one, the son of perdition. He's going to make a pact with them. And for 1260 days, the world over is hands off. Touch them not. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. It's going to be a glorious time. The temple, if it hasn't built just before that, it's going to be established and things are going to be rolling great and there will be no Arab conflict 1260 days. They wouldn't dare do it. Big Brother's going to step in and squash them. It's during this very time God's going to send two witnesses and this son of perdition is going to war against them. And God's going to send 144,000 Jewish virgins that you'll find in the book of Revelation and this same Antichrist is going to war against them. And Israel's going to stand by. She's got her temple sacrifice. She's got her God. And something's going to happen. Midpoint. After 1260 days, that's what Revelation talks about directly. Antichrist is going to do something. You know exactly what he's going to do? Second Thessalonians talks about this. He's going to go into that temple. He's going to enter into the holy place. He's going to scooch his little behind on the altar of the Most High God and proclaim himself to be God and to be worshipped. Every Jew is a man. We'll look at that. And the scripture says at that moment their eyes will be opened. Only judgment's going to occur. Who's behind the Antichrist? Your adversary, the devil. That's what Daniel 12 is talking about. Look at this some. At that time, Michael will stand up. The great prince would stand up for the children of thy people. There shall come a time of trouble, such as, as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. This passage right here is a great reason why this is not some singular reference to the historical account of 70 A.D. Destruction of the temple. There'd be some say, well, see, all of this Old Testament stuff that happened at 70 A.D. When the temple was destroyed, that's when it had, couldn't be. A destruction as such as never been seen. You think about destructions that's followed since 70 A.D. I named some of them. I don't know if six million Jews died in the Holocaust or not, but I know what, it wasn't ten. Tens of thousands of such as never been seen. Everyone, the only say, everyone that's name is found in the book. Verse number four, he tells Daniel, shut the book, seal the book, even to the time of the end that may increase. And Daniel said, I looked, and behold, verse five, there stood two, one on this side of the bank of the river, one on the other side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? How, how long until it's all finished? 
And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the water of the river, and he held up his right hand and his left hand into heaven. And he swore by him that liveth forever. He said it shall be for time, for times, and half. It's three and a half years of that last week of Daniel. He shall accomplish to scatter the power of the holy people. All these things shall be finished. And notice what he says as he continues. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Verse 11, and from the time that the daily offering shall be taken away. When's that? 1260 days after the tribulation begins, a midway point, three and a half years. The abomination make it desolate set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Revelation calls it 1,260 days. Not a contrast. He's referring to something slightly different. The moment of that desolation, three and a half years, where this devil is going to seek to devour it all. Let me read you one more passage. This is not a passage you probably turn to often, but look over Zechariah, the minor prophets. You're in Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, name whom Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, then Hezekiah. No, no. <laughs> look at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13. Listen to this. This during the same time frame. I want you to get the understanding of what the word devour and your enemy means. Look, if you will, chapter 13. Zechariah is talking about this same time period. Verse number 8 and following, It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be what? You know, I've made mention of this before. 25th chapter, 24th chapter of Matthew, two in the field, one to be taken. This is what he's talking about. From the moment of that abomination maketh desolate, the utter destruction that will fall upon Israel will be as such that the world has never seen. That old knucklehead said, I'm going to go death con on the Jewish people. He's a fool. He's speaking the very words of the evil one that seeks to devour them. Notice back in Revelation chapter 13. Notice this last one. Revelation chapter 12. There's another group. He sought to devour the angels. He's going to war against them. He sought to devour the woman. We've narrated that. He sought to devour the Messiah. Verse number 17. End of the chapter. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. It's that little bit that's left. It's the same ones that Paul refers to in the 9th, 10th chapter and 11th chapter of Romans. Just this remnant. Which keep the, test, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's already killed all of them that don't believe. It's just a little remnant's left. And that little remnant's left just as saved as you and me. And I want you to notice the attitude there. He's wroth with the woman. That wroth comes from the tense of wrath. Deep-seated, long-brewing anger. He's realized his end is near. He's realized he can't accuse the brethren anymore. He can't touch those that have been raptured out. That's me and you. He can't get to Messiah. He lost against Michael and the angels. And he's just about destroyed all of Israel, save this little remnant. And one thing in common about all that remnant, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he thrives with all of his being to extinguish them from the face of the earth. Let me make application. I realize this isn't directly eschatologically talking about me and you. But if this will be his attitude and wrath is a signification, what do you think he feels now? 
your adversary the devil, seeking whom he may devour. It's not word game and semantics. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. When Paul told the church at Ephesus not to be in a place of life that gave place to the devil in their life, it wasn't a poetic turn of a phrase. He's serious. He's saying pay attention to how you walk and walk circumspectly and live for God and do right because I'm telling you he'll do anything possible to destroy you. Peter's talking to the suffering church there in Babylon. In 1 Peter chapter 5 he says, Your adversary, peripeto, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Catapino, swallow up whole. It's true then. It's true now. So often Christians say, we're in the last days of the last days. And don't you think that this would be the time where the most wickedness is poured out? Wouldn't you think that this is the time where believers need to be more urgent and more dedicated and more serious about the decisions they make, about the thoughts that they have, about the engagements that they give? And I dare say as a whole Christianity, I don't think you'll disagree with this is about as lazy as it can possibly be. Discernment is not only a word that's difficult to spell, it's difficult for most Christians to comprehend. We make decisions based on what trends are. We make decisions, God help us, about churches, about what will attract lost people to a church. How stupid is that? Is it not God's? It's a powerful consideration. It's a strong admonition. No wonder he says there in Peter, be sober, be vigilant. Spiritual warfare. The enemy, clearly. Let's stand for me. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box. 126541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org Until next time